Alright, we will finally come to uh, the end of chapter 13 and move into chapter 14. We will go through chapter 14 much quicker. I think I'm only going to be speaking out of it three different messages, including today, I, I think. Might be another one, but uh, so it'll be a lot quicker though. So, um, I hope though that by the time we get done with chapter 13, we have uh, set the stage, we have set the context to chapter 14, because 14, as I said in my prayer, is is not always uh, as clear as maybe we would like it. And that's the Lord's doing. But if we've set the context, we know to some degree what chapter 14 will not be teaching. That is, it will not be teaching that tongues is the primary gift that we are to search for, to ask God for, and to exercise in the uh, local church. I think that should be abundantly clear. Uh, and we'll, it'll be made more so clear, I believe, in chapter 14. But anybody who thinks that tongues is to be something we are to emphasize, that is a necessary part of the local church's worship, I think has started in chapter 14 and has ignored chapters 12 and 13. And of course, that's always lead to problems. So anyway, last week we saw that we cannot point to a text that plainly states tongues have ceased early on. It's just that's just the nature of things. I believe it has for the most part, but but I you know we have to be honest enough that the, that there's no place in Scripture that says it no longer is valid, never should be exercised, and that's okay. But there are many reasons, and we dealt with that. I gave several reasons why I believe uh, we can assume that they are no longer the norm, and they are not to be exercised in the church services, which we'll get into, especially in chapter fourteen. And that we should be extremely wary of any who use them today like that because they cannot be verified and they seem to never be done biblically to start with. So there's a lot of shadows cast upon the use of tongues today that I think help us know where we need to stand in all these things. We also saw the Spirit's work is to show us Christ that we might grow in his image this can only be done through the expounding of the word. And I kind of, uh, just a little illustration here. Uh, services that have a 45-minute song service, asking the Spirit to rain down upon them. And, and it, I just recently was in a service that was somewhat like that. Now, there was never going to be a long service. It was, it's not, wasn't really a regular church service. But it was interesting because they sang kind of the, the K-Love songs, and some of them specifically said, come down upon us, uh, rain down upon us, we want to censure blessings and all that kind of stuff, okay. But, we're going to have a 15 minute sermonette, you're, you're basically asking God to do something that cannot be done. The Spirit comes through the, the, the proclamation of the Word of God. And what you're praying for, when you, when you kind of do it apart from the preaching, and you're asking the Spirit to come and make His presence known, you're asking that He do that in an emotional and ecstatic way. To, to send tongues or something, so we can see the Spirit moving. Oh, we don't want to hear it in the preaching of God's Word or the transformation of our lives. We don't want to see it in the holiness of our lives, right? We want an emotional experience. We don't want to see Christ in the text. And that is the problem with so much of the charismatic idea. 
that we want the Spirit's presence to be manifested in the spectacular and the emotional, not in the hard work of reading and understanding the text and asking God to uh, reveal himself that way. So uh, to me, those things are important to understand and to follow after. Now, it's not hard to notice that he has, at least in this latter part of chapter 13, he has to some degree, for whatever the reason, we can might debate the reasons, but he has left tongues behind as he describes our position now. He says our knowledge and our and prophecies are incomplete now, but they, they are important, but they are incomplete now. But the time is coming in verse 10 when we shall... Uh, when the perfect comes, when the partial shall pass away, we understand partially now, but the time is coming when we will understand fully. We try to show that <clears throat> that was not a reference to the canon being completed, because that does not fit in well with verses 11 and 12. Because Paul goes on to say, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So there's the illustration. He says, for now we see through a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And to say that that is going to be when the finished canon arrives, I think is nonsense because there's no way anybody, including Paul, can say, I now that I have all the revelation as opposed to just some of the books, I now know fully as I am going to be known. And Paul was going to die before the finished canon came anyway, so he was never going to experience it, right? So no, he's referring to the time when the Lord comes back, or at least when we are translated into glory and all sin is removed, and then we are known fully, even as we are known. And, uh, uh, we I referred to this last week, First John three two. I think this is John saying something very similar to what Paul was saying. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. So I think that's what Paul is referring to. So I don't believe this text can be made to say that. That once the full canon comes, we no longer need tongues. Although I think it's very obvious that there's a sense in which that is the case. Uh, but really, even before the canon uh, fit was finished, finally given, tongues were beginning to disappear, as we saw last week. The, even the early church fathers talked about that. Because they were a sign to the Jews of their destruction, of their rejection because they had rejected the Messiah, and they were a sign that the new covenant had come uh, and the giving of the Holy Spirit, and, and as that became obvious, it was no longer needed. But we can't go to this text and try to prove it in that way. <clears throat> so I think that is the, um, the, the, the context of this last few verses of chapter 13. Now we walk by faith, but then we will... Not, we will walk by sight. We will know even as we are fully known. And so in verse 12, Paul likens our perception of truth and reality now as in looking in a mirror which only imperfectly reflects reality. Now, in our day and age, our mirrors are pretty good. 
and I can look at my mirror, and I can unfortunately see it all. And but you got to understand what Paul is saying here. Paul in Paul's day, mirrors were generally just uh, shiny uh, brass or whatever metal object they could get. They sometimes maybe could see the reflection in the water or something like that. But uh, there were very few windows in in Rome. There were window panes, but uh, they, they weren't mirrors as we understand it. So, and someone likened it to a mirror you might get at a roadside uh, rest stop is all beat up and dirty and filthy. You you saw yourself. You saw a basic image, but you didn't see yourself well. A partial. That, that's his point. Uh, the, the KJV has glass, and some people have tried to say that Paul's talking about now you're looking, you're looking through a, maybe some kind of glass that was dimmed and smoky or and ill. But but that's I don't think the KJV means that. Remember, in in the, in, in those days, it would be very rare for anybody to have an actual window pane to look through actual clear glass. I think this is a reference to a mirror. You know, every translation refers to his mirror, and I think the KJV is too. You think about Alice in Wonderland, as she goes through the looking glass, right? It was a mirror. That's what, it's a reference to a mirror, because glass, clear glass was extremely rare in, in 1611. So, I don't, so, so, I, some people try to say he's not talking about a mirror there, but I think that's, you can't get, you can't do that. In fact, the only other time this word is used is over in James, when James talks about how we, uh, when we look at the Word of God, we, it is, it, we are to use it like you look at a mirror. You look at you look at a mirror to, to see what you look like, right? And that's what the Word of God does, and it's translated mirror there as well. And so, you know, Paul says, right now I'm looking. I'm not looking at the real thing. There's a sense in which you know he he, he hasn't been. He, he doesn't see God. He doesn't understand everything. But but there's a time coming when it's all going to be bright and light and clear, and there's not going to be any uh, any lack of of, what, of the truth will know it all. And so, um, as, as, as one looks into these mirrors, it helps us appreciate what Paul is saying. Um, it's impossible right now to see things as clearly as we would like to. And the Corinthians should not cling then to their spiritual gifts with pride and think too highly of themselves. Rather, they should possess and appreciate all gifts as temporary provisions of God because that someday we'll no longer need. And and to take a gift and to blow it up out of proportion and to use it to become proud and not to exalt Christ, it is to use it in a completely wrong way. So when we stand before the Lord, we will have lost all pride because we will finally be able to see ourselves as we truly are because we'll be looking at Jesus Christ, the glory of God, right? And there will be no pretense, no uh, false ego, uh, egoism or anything like that because we'll know better and we'll see it all. And so in glory, gifts that are given to teach us and to enable us to serve in a fallen world will no longer be needed because we will know it all. We'll know all that we need to know. And we'll have perfect righteousness. Now we have spoken of the need, even today, of the gifts of prophecy and knowledge. And so I would at least agree in theory 
with those that say that Paul is separating them from tongues as because he no longer mentions them, because Paul is, I think, and he'll do this in chapter 14, showing that knowledge and prophecies are much more important than gifts anyway, because that's what edifies the church. That's how we grow. And so I think that there's a probably, there's, we could say that there's a reason why Paul kind of no longer mentions tongues, but again, that's inference. It's, there's not, it's not a verse that actually states that. But then he finishes in verse 13 by saying, and now, at this point, in, in this age, we have faith, hope, and love. They abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. There's, that's the point. That's what all these things are getting us to. And so if love continues, then I wonder, I was kind of thinking about this uh, this week, in eternity, if that will consist of love in its, in its fullest sense, love today is, is how we, we think about it, it's our interactions with each other, not just our feelings we have towards each other, but the motivation and the way we react with each other. And if, and if in eternity there will be love, I would think, well, how do we demonstrate love to each other when, when every need is met? You don't need anything from me. There's no way I can serve you because well, what am I going to give you that you won't already have, right? So I was just kind of thinking in my mind, you know, how is that going to look? And, and what I came up with, and maybe, you know, at the end of the message or something, you want to, uh, Maybe you come up with some other ideas. That'd be uh, great to, to share that with us. But I thought, at least in part, we would have one way I could have exercised love is to have completely sinless um, attitudes towards everybody. No, 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 no bad thoughts. Uh, be completely open. No hypocrisy. It's just complete uh, communion, perfect communion and peace. No mistrust. I don't. I no longer mistrust you because I don't have to, and you don't. Know, you no longer have to mistrust me. There's nothing to be jealous of, right? So love will exist, but in a form that we probably, in a sense, really can hardly even fathom at this time. Paul tells us that love is a pearl of great price. It's a thing of great value. And see, the Corinthians. Knowingly or not, we're sacrificing love for gifts, for temporary gifts. <clears throat> Paul sh- shows that that's contrary to the eternal values, and since love is the greatest of all those things. And so, that kind of, I think, sums up chapter 13, and we can move then into chapter 14. And uh, I'm just going to deal with the first four verses, and, and what I want to do here, first of all, is just make some comments about chapter 14, and especially the first four verses, and set, set, uh, say some things. And then I'm going to go back and just deal briefly with the first four verses. So that, just keep in mind, that's what I'm doing here. And overall in this chapter, Paul is asking the Corinthians how the use of tongues fits into what he has said in the last two chapters. I think you have to keep some of these things in mind. As we think about, are, are we to exercise tongues, uh, in the, certainly in the church or even privately, it, it, it's got to fit in the overall context. So instead of tongues being a gift to help edify, um, or to, uh, in the way that, uh, tongues had been, as we saw in chapter, in, in the book of Acts, tongues were, primary purpose was to, first of all, 
be a way that Israel would know that the day of judgment has come. And Paul would refer to that later on in chapter 14. And they also let people know that the Spirit had been given, the great promise of the Old Testament had been given, because initially, each people group, when they received Christ in the gospel, they would speak in tongues, and the Jerusalem church knew, the apostles knew that, yes, they have received the gift. So that was the use of tongues, as we said. That's why we would assume their use would die off. And so, um, instead of tongues being used as a gift to, to maybe in the early, as it's kind of continued in the services, it would be a sign that God had given someone tongues, that God was moving. Um, and, and, and if it was interpreted, Tongues were, were always just praising God, talking about his, his marvelous works. And they could be edified in that sense. They had digressed into something that looked an awful lot like the gibberish of pagan religions. We saw that back in chapter 12. And I think Paul here is probably referring a little bit to that even in the first four verses. <clears throat> Those worshiping pagan gods would drink and dance and orgy themselves into a state of semi-consciousness or even in some cases unconsciousness and that experience would be considered the highest form of communion with the divine in other words it was kind of working yourself up into this semi-conscious state that they considered themselves talking to the gods and it's, and it's interesting that that is exactly what many do today. They think this is the highest form of worship. And as we get to here in a moment, many use the first, uh, verses two and three to be teaching, uh, that there is a so-called, uh, personal prayer language in which in your prayers you start speaking in tongues in, in, inside yourself and you're speaking to God. You don't know what you're saying. But they consider that, and, I, and I've, I've listened to, I've, I've read after them, they consider this experience of speaking in an unknown language, and they don't know what they're saying, to heighten their experience and heighten their worship of God. So it's not through their mind. It's this emotional high they get on to think, oh, God is somehow doing all this. And yet it's, it's, it's so close to paganism. That should, it, it, to me, it would be very scary if, if that's what's going on, right? <clears throat> but uh, some have suggested, I think rightly so, that what Paul is saying here, and, and the, the, a sister passage that helps us understand chapter 14, is Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, where he says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So, if you drink too much, we know that you begin to lose a measure of control and you no longer can think properly, right? Which would look, would, would look a lot like those pagan orgies and, and drunk parties. But he said, what's the opposite of that? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, unfortunately, I think some people read this and they think, well, that means that the Holy Spirit, when he fills me, it's going to look a lot like me getting drunk. And I think you completely missed the point. It's saying, do not be controlled by this. Do not be controlled by the flesh. Be controlled by the Holy Spirit. 
And if you want to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, you're going to know this book very well. And the, and the more you know the book and the more you live by the book, the more you're going to be controlled by the Spirit. And that is way different than uh, being in an emotional state in which you uh, don't know. The Holy Spirit is just doing things through you. If you go online and you watch some of these services, uh, it's it's people have worked themselves up into an emotional tizzy. There's no real preaching going on. But there's a lot of music and a lot of motion and a lot of being controlled by something, but not by the word of God. And I think that says a lot. <clears throat> and it goes on to say, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So you're not praying or singing in something un- in an unknown language or in some ecstatic state where you don't know what's going on. But uh, but with biblical songs, with truth, you are being controlled by the Spirit. So I think you cannot divorce chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians from, I believe, that verse. I think they're really saying, as, as we get into this, you'll see Paul saying uh, pretty much the same thing. Because he'll go on to say that if you're speaking in tongues, even in, even... Uh, in, in your inside of yourself, and you don't know what you're saying, and nobody else knows what you're saying, what good is it? And we'll get to that in just a moment. <clears throat> so first of all, another thing to comment I wanted to say was that the word spirit here um, in uh, verse th- uh, 2, for the one who speaks in a tongue, notice tongue is, is singular here, I think in this chapter, uh, MacArthur brings this out, and I, and I have to agree with him. I think that the word tongue, when it's singular, is speaking of somebody speaking in a foreign language, in a tongue, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, perhaps, but it's being used in a questionable way. When it's plural, I think he's referring to the general gifts of tongues. But if you notice, every time it's singular, he's calling something into question. And then also, but as he goes on here in verse 3, or verse 2, The one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. The ESV is the only translation that I know of that uses the capital S here. And I I would say it's questionable whether it should be. And, and what I mean by that, of course, in the Greek, it's only the context that let you know whether to capitalize this, with, whether it's referring to the Holy Spirit or your spirit. And you have to go by the context. That's why it's a difficult call. But I think a case can be made that what Paul is saying, that this is a man, that if you're speaking um, in tongues and no one understands, it's just, you're saying something inside, but, but no one else is benefiting from it, including yourself, as they'll go on to say. So it doesn't necessarily have to mean that the Holy Spirit is doing this, but it's something that's taking place in you that's of no value. And I think that we could say that's really the, the only point he's trying to make. We don't have to try to make it mean more than it really, what it really does. Because what he's pointing out is that this is inferior to preaching. And, and that's, again, there's different views about all this. It's not always easy to understand. But you can see the main point here. Whatever is going on here, it's inferior to anything that actually edifies somebody. Right? We can say that. 
And so as we get into this chapter, it's clear that their services have become somewhat described as confusing and emotionalism and self-exhibitionalism. In other words, a promotion of self. Because he'll go on to talk about that. Later on, he'll say, you know, if there's going to be someone speaking in tongues, two or three at the most, they must have an interpreter, and then that's it. So he's saying, it's not to be the, the service, it's to be something that, uh, one or two, whatever, a few, and then move on. You see, and again, so we, you've got to keep all these things in mind, or we get ourselves in all sorts of trouble. And so, I would say that there are at least three main points that Paul is concerned with about tongues in this chapter. Um, it is secondary to prophecy, as I've kind of already talked about. It's secondary to plain preaching. Its purpose was assigned to unbelievers, as we've talked about. And, and for our, our, what we kind of moved, something I haven't talked about yet, it is to be done decently and in order. And, and, and if you can't do that, then uh, it shouldn't be done. Okay, so let me just li- listen some things to keep in mind as we go through this chapter, and then we'll quickly go through the first four verses. First of all, and some of this is a repetition, but first of all, tongues are uh, something that uh, the Spirit does. It is, it's, it's, it's not something you make up. Again, I'm not aware, really, if there's anybody out there who who can... Certainly, you can't verify it that that are speak that they're not doing it on their own. You, you can't really verify the spirits involved with it at all. But the tongues of the New Testament, the spirit came upon them and moved them to speak. It wasn't something where you went and you learned how to speak in tongues. If you've got to learn how to speak in tongues, you're not speaking in New Testament tongues, right? <clears throat> Secondly, tongues are primarily addressed to God. They they're a way of glorifying the Lord. It drew attention in, in Acts 2. It drew attention to the work of God. In the early church then, as it was still carried out, if there was an interpretation, it would be uh, people would be praising God. It would be a form of, of worship and praising God. They were not ever, someone would get up and speak a whole sermon in tongues. That wasn't the way you edified. That, that was part of the worship process. Thirdly, tongues are not normally understood by the speaker or the hearer unless interpreted because it was a foreign language. So at least in the services at this time, now in Acts, they understood because they were from other countries. If the Holy Spirit was continuing to uh, do that, to, to let people know that this is what it, what's been going on, it, 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 it went out gradually. <clears throat> it was it hadn't changed without an interpreter. Nobody was going to understand it. Fourthly, tongue speaking is under control of the speaker and it is not an involuntary act. And this is one of the things that separates it from what we see today, right? And notice this down in verse uh, 28 of chapter 14. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak himself to God then verse uh, 32 and the spirits of prophecy are subject to prophets so there Paul makes it very clear here that there is the ability 
if if the Holy Spirit gives you that gift to to say something in tongues, you can say nope. There's no interpreter here, so I'm not going to do it. You had control of your facilities. It wasn't something that uh, of your faculties. It wasn't something that you couldn't help. It wasn't an emotional experience. It was it was something that you could say no. Uh, there's no one here to interpret, so Paul says keep quiet. And again, that's very telling when we come to um, what's going on today. <clears throat> um, fifthly, the content of tongues it was to, uh, was to uh, praise and adoration of God rather than revelation or systematic teaching or preaching. I've already referred to that, but I would just again quote this, I think, from last week in Acts 2.11. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. <clears throat> they they spoke of, they, they, they were speaking praises to God and making others ask what is going on because we hear this in our own language. And then Peter comes along with a sermon and preaches the gospel. But the tongues were never meant to be preaching in that sense. <clears throat> okay, so verse 1. Paul says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So here again, he downplays tongues and says, It's okay to pursue gifts, but primarily pursue ones that are helpful to the church <clears throat> to hunt after love which by now we should be able to understand why he says this because uh, they had a zeal for gifts that, that extoked their pride but then he qualifies it by what should motivate this zeal and that is a love for the edification of God's people which prophecy does best. The, the preaching, the, the clear in preaching of God's word does that best. The proclamation of God's word stands at the top of useful gifts. Not the, not all that we need. We need many more, right? But that certainly stands at the top as far as usefulness goes. And the use of the others are to aid in that, to aid in the church as they come together for the preaching. So praise says to be useful. He says, don't pray for something that others can see. That's not the point. And so you see that what, he, what he's doing here with, with the relationship to tongues. And then in verse 2, we get to really one that's very difficult to understand. And as you read the commentators, it couldn't be more diverse commentate, commentaries on it. Where he says, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. And, and again, don't we get carried away with some of this, but notice what he's saying. He says he's he's showing why preaching is more important, why prophecy is more important, because if you're speaking in tongues, God understands you, but nobody else does. It doesn't mean that this is a private prayer language that you pray to God, uh, but you don't understand what's going on. Because God doesn't need to, uh, to, for you to, to praise him or pray to him, and you don't understand what's going on. God doesn't need that. And so we don't make we don't want to make verse two to say more than what it's saying that if you're praying in an unknown language nobody understands you but God and that's that's a bad thing it's not that it's, it was not a legitimate use of the gift but it's but he says what good is that doing you in the local service so 
So on the one hand, it's generally assumed that Paul is stating what happens if there's no interpreter, as I just said, because God alone understands what's being said, so the church is is missing out. And that would, I think, make sense when we think about verse 3. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So it's really not that difficult to understand why he's saying this. The problem is is that some read verse 2 and 3 and say Paul is developing a uh, private prayer language. And I think that's just a complete misuse of of the text. I can see why somebody would say that's what it looks like. But to say that that's really Paul's point, when Paul is really downplaying tongues, especially tongues without interpretation, um, I think it makes much more sense. And and here, when I close, I'm going to give you some reasons why I don't believe there is such a thing as private prayer language. And if you go online and read people trying to explain it, it gets all nebulous. That's that's part of the problem. You you can't use the, the scriptures to define it. And you're left just kind of speculating on whatever you want it to be. And that's always dangerous. But the idea here is that tongues uh, in private with nobody understanding isn't as profitable as the preaching. And to be honest with you, well, I would reject out of hand a private prayer language for the following reasons. And you can take them for, uh, I, I don't know anybody here practices private prayer language. As I said last week, if you do, it's probably better to keep it to yourself anyway. But you're gonna you're gonna come across somebody who does, and so here's why I would reject this out of hand. <clears throat> First of all, there's no place in the Bible where anyone is ever seen as praying in anything but normal cognitive language. We don't find anybody speaking in a way that they don't know what in the world they're saying. And again, to you say, well, what about right here? Well, you're talking about the gift of tongues that was for a purpose. This is not, Paul doesn't say this is supposed to be normal activity. Even in John 17, when Jesus is praying to the Father, it is very clear. It is very simple language. Uh, if anybody was able to speak in tongues, it would be Jesus. But what would be the point? There's Matthew 6, 7, for instance, that I have up on the board. It says, when you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. And of course he goes into what we call the Lord's Prayer. So God is the one who is inspiring you to pray as it were. You don't, you're not praying, uh, he doesn't need to be told anything. And, 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 and just saying a lot of words, and certainly a lot of words you don't understand, isn't accomplishing anything. He knows what you need. Your prayer is for you to submit yourself to his will and to pour out your heart to him. But that takes a brain. It takes a cognitive understanding. And, and so he doesn't, he says, pray like this. It's the Lord's prayer and is not speaking in tongues. The many words he refers to here in, in Matthew 6 could sound much like the gibberish of the pagan prayers. One thing we must always be on guard against is wanting the sophisticated over the simple and the mysterious over that which is edifying. And we all know that 
Our flesh wants excitement. It wants uh, to see emotional things. That's why music is such a can be such a problem because it can be used to manipulate uh, emotionally. And I don't say that in a negative way, but it can be. We've always got to be on guard again. We don't need to uh, seek it. One of the attractions of tongues is the assumption that the Spirit is in immediate control. And so, in a sense, you are listening and seeing God at work. In other words, if someone stood up here and was praying in tongues, if we thought that God was actually doing that, we would we would be impressed. We would say, oh, look, at God is... is is immediately grabbed hold of that person and is displaying his power in them. And isn't this wonderful? Well, maybe in a sense, but what's it accomplishing? See, that's the problem. And this holds true if you believe that you're speaking in tongues while praying to the Lord. And as I said before, people who think that they're praying in tongues because they've, they've gotten themselves so worked up emotionally that they all of a sudden start speaking in tongues, they, they think this is... Um, enhancing their worship because God has got hold of me and look what's going on. But the problem is, step back for a moment and think what's happening in nothing. You're not praying in any sense. You're not, you don't know what you're saying. And so what's the point? Now some have used Matthew 8 where the Spirit groans and we don't know how to pray the Spirit groans for us, you know, and say, well that's a similar Meaning right there, and I would say no, that's not the case at all. The passage of Romans 8 is the Spirit groaning to the Father when we don't know what to pray for. In other words, listen, we all very, lots of times, right, we really don't know what to pray for. We're in a situation, we see something going on, we don't know the right thing. We pray that God's will would be done, but maybe it's, uh, you know, your, your child is dying or your loved one, you're, you're just groaning, you're, you're I shouldn't use that term. You're you're praying the best you can, but it says the Spirit groans. We're not groaning in an unknown language. The Spirit is groaning. In other words, the Spirit is praying, and and the triune is is speaking to each other in words that we can't understand, of course. We're not privy to. Um, But it's telling us that, so God, that, uh, God's plans don't hinge on our prayers alone, but that God is, is in full control. Even when we don't know what to pray, the, the Godhead is glorified by our faith, not controlling us like robots. The, God's will is going to be done. The Holy Spirit's going to uh, get with the Father, and they're going to work this scene out, and they're, they're glorified and pleased with their prayers. It doesn't say that we're groaning in incomprehensible language, and then the Spirit takes that and makes sense of it to the Father. It's just, it's just not saying that. Now, John MacArthur has an interesting take on verse 2, where um, he sees this as uh, Paul kind of tongue-in-cheek, referring to uh, them speaking in tongues as the pagans do. And uh, so he says that the word God there should be small g. So that uh, if you're praying in tongues, you're really praying uh, to the God. You're not praying to God. Uh, I, even though I agree with his with, with where he goes, I, I think that's a stretch. 
I don't think you can, there's no, every translation capitalizes it, I think, properly. So, I think it's a legitimate use of tongues. It's just that it's not accomplishing what uh, they will, if anything. And that's what Paul is saying there. So, I'll just throw that out. Um, and I think this was support. If you look down to verses 13 and 15, notice what it says here. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray to the, for the power to interpret it. For, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, or in other words, I'm praying on the inside, as it were, but my mind is unfruitful. So he says, something's going on, but I'm not benefiting from it. What am I to do? Verse 15. I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. So Paul seems to say that I have the ability to not do this when I pray, I'm going to pray in a way that I understand. I'm not going to use a private prayer language I don't understand because it's unfruitful. And I think that's extremely important as he gets down to starts to wind this stuff down. He says, I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. I'm not going to do something. I have the power to not do that which I'm not being edified and nobody else is either. And I think that's important uh, verses to think about. Um, and so verse 3, I think this will make the, help us make the most sense out of verse 3 then. As it goes on to say, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So I don't think this is all that difficult to understand. As long as you don't try to twist it into a private prayer language, it's not really that difficult. It's saying that if the tongues might be going on, but in the church service, if we've got an interpreter, it doesn't make much sense to do it. And that's why I said last week, if you want to speak in tongues privately, if you feel like the Lord is doing that, if you've got the gift, okay, fine. Just don't bring it into the church because uh, nobody's going to be able to interpret it. The other way such a one could be edified would be because he has the gift of interpretation, as Paul says, to at least pray for that. Because if you don't understand what you're saying, you know, you're not being benefited either. So Paul's whole point is that it is useless in the church setting. And verse 2 seems to be saying that no one else, that no one else present understands. So Paul isn't necessarily saying that such a one is actually being edified, you know, because you're praying, uh, in an unknown language, and you're being edified, but nobody else is. Well, no, because in verse uh, 13 and 14, Paul says, if I do this and I don't understand it, I'm not being, it's unfruitful, I'm not being edified. And so at the very least, he is saying that tongues um, are uh, the least of the gifts at that point. Now, John MacArthur does make, I think, a legitimate point, something that's possible in verse 4, when he says that Paul is being sarcastic because his point is that no one is edified by tongues alone without an interpreter, while everyone is edified if they understand what's being said. So as we read that in verse 4, we're almost done here, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. MacArthur says he thinks that's tongue-in-cheek. He, he's basically kind of saying, look, if you speak in tongues, it's, it's really a waste. And if you speak in a way that people understand, you're actually accomplishing something. 
And I think I have to. I think that that's at least getting to the point of what's being said. And if we read down to verse 19, I think that that is Paul's overall point. So let's just do that. Let's read down to verse 19, and then we will, uh, for the most, we'll, we'll pretty much be done. But I, but just I want you to see the context of this thing because once you understand what Paul's point is, it keeps us from jumping off into places that I don't think Paul really ever meant for us to go. So in verse 5, Now I want you all to speak in tongues. You say, boy, that sounds like he's completely contrary to everything you just said. Well, I'll get to that next week, but I don't think it undoes what what I'm saying here. Because tongues, if it's a real gift, why would Paul be against it, right? So let's just leave it at that right now. But even more to prophesy. So again, notice the the comparison, because that's the point. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongue unless someone interprets so the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as a flute or harp or uh, do not give distinctive notes, how will anyone know what is played? And I think this is big. I'll get to it next week. He's saying here that noise is not good. Activity, just the presence of tongues is is of no value if it's not understood. Just like nobody goes to a concert to hear them warming up and tuning up, right? They want to hear the music. Noise isn't edifying. I think that's big. Verse 8. And if the bugle gives it an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with you yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world and none without meaning, but if I do not know the meaning of that language, I will be a foreigner with the speaker and a speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, Strive to excel in the building up of the church. And it's already quarter after, so let me, I'll stop there because we're going to get into all this anyway. But do you not see what Paul's overall understanding of tongues and anything that nobody understands how he views it? I don't see how you can get away from it. I honestly do not see how any charismatic person who believes in tongues can read chapter 14 and 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 justify what they're doing. I just don't see it, but, you know, obviously some do, but we'll have to leave it at that. But um, we'll, we'll stop there today. Um, are there any questions here before?